Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Afrofang, the podcast where every episode is a new adventure. I am Yafuswasare and I'm thrilled to have you join us. Here we dive into the art of conversation with a twist. Each episode features a random chat with one of my friends. From the profound to the completely unexpected, our discussions are as diverse as my, cer- my circle of friends. So grab a coffee, settle in, and let's see where today's conversation yeah. takes so us. Remember, in this space, every story is worth telling um, and every voice is heard. Let's like get started. Ah, <laughs> uh, I had to do a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Podcasts and um, videos and media stuff. So you did your undergrad in Griffith? You did build. Yeah. So what did you do? I did that? journalism. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know. So I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a travel writer, but it oh, wasn't possible. Cool. <laughs> how is it not co- like? How is it not possible? Um, no one will give you a job as a travel writer. You basically have to go Absolutely. out and travel and, and write, write, and then hope that someone will publish it. So it's a very expensive um, hobby <laughs> to ah. eventually get published from. Did you do any journalist work? Journalism? Yeah, I did a little bit of work for the Tweed Daily News and I used to read the news on Radio Metro. Um, Where's Radio Metro? Is a radio station? In surface, yeah. It's an, a radio station. Cool, like a six, like six o'clock news, you were one. Yeah, but it was very light, you know. <laughs> there was cool. a little bit of serious news and a little bit of entertainment news. And yeah, oh, I didn't know that I wasn't about a very you. good journalist. <laughs> <laughs> what, like why would you like what's a good journalist uh, I think to be well to be a very good news journalist you have to be comfortable bothering people um, like politicians and uh, you know, and asking questions that people don't want to answer mm. so you have to be a little bit more um, assertive I think um, and a little bit impolite and I think I'm yeah yeah too nice too, too polite. <laughs> <laughs> too polite for people. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Then you went to do your master's. So I did my honours in ah. creative writing. So I've always wondered. We'll come back to like you, your name and your PhD and everything. But like I always wondered, how does the honours system work? You do your four years, then you do a, a top up of honours. So I guess the honours year in Australia is a bit similar to a fourth year in places like Europe. Oh yeah. Where um, so most people in Europe and Asia do a four year undergraduate and the fourth year they do a small like Project. a baby thesis. Oh. Um, the honours year is fully research focused. So you do four courses that teach you how to do research mm. and then you do um, a thesis. I think it's forty or fifty thousand words. Anyone can do like they. Because I realized they really pick the the smart ones to do the. They try to encourage the really smart ones to do the honors. So you for Griffiths, you needed a five point five GPA, so mm. not hugely high. Yeah. Um, mm. and yeah, obviously you have to find a supervisor and project yeah because of like I, when i started i met this girl she was like 23 and she was doing a phd yeah that really surprised me i was like oh how? and she's like she did it she just came came out of her honest and she already doing a phd i think i graduated with her i was mm-hmm. like wow she probably like 24 uh, 26 27 now which is pretty like it's pretty young to yeah graduate from a phd yeah so uh 
I guess describe you need to talk about you and your work and your what you've been up to since so Chantel like how would you like how would you describe your work and yourself um so I have a creative writing background mm. um and my research is interested in um, relationships between the human and non-human in urban places. Mm. Um, so I've done a lot of um, work looking at representations of um, urban nature in fiction and non-fiction, um, as well as how we can go about writing about urban nature in ways that show us that it is here in the city and we can connect with it um, and we don't need to go to you know wild and rural places to see yeah so when you talk about urban nature it's like the birds the the like the nature around the city and what we see and how we humans relate to them and yeah so it becomes very complicated when we talk about nature uh, yeah. um, because of course humans are also part of nature, nature. and being able to say what is um, non-human and what is human um, becomes very complicated at what point you know do you consider domesticated um, other species or other animals uh, as yeah. part of human the human side or yeah. you know non-human they're kind of in between um, and then what about structures that are you know uh, created um, by humans but out of um, you know, non-human materials mm. or impacted, you know, by weather and other species. So, yeah. um, so when I when when I talk about nature, I'm often talking about you know um, entanglements between human and non-human, um, between other animals and plants and like environmental phenomena like mm. climate change and yeah yeah so with your work you fictionalize so with this thing you got like it's a lot of fiction and you so you i've saw your thesis and you was an exegesis so then you wrote a whole novel about the the thesis which i which i thought was pretty cool because I, I don't think i've ever seen someone finish like the end of a thesis it's a, it's a whole story um, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it's quite um, popular at Griffith for creative writing oh, yeah. students, mm. um, and I think QUT as well. And oh, there okay. are a couple of universities that do creative writing PhDs. Mm. Um, and there have been people like um, uh, what's her name, Hannah. What's her name? Let me just Google it. <laughs> You'll cut this right. Ah <laughs> um, oh, no, I'll keep it. The gap. Yeah, it's uh, it's part of the whole. Uh, Hannah Kent. Um, her first book um, about Iceland mm. um, that was written for her PhD. So then she was able to publish it and, yeah. and won a couple of awards. And I think there are a few writers that have done things like that. Yeah, yeah. but like you, you didn't do that for your book. No, I my book. Um, so maybe the, it the was title good enough for the PhD. Yeah. Um, but it was not. It needed a lot of work to be um, publishable, 
and I also don't feel that I achieved what I wanted to. So it had it was um, three strands, three different um, stories mm. um, about women and their relationship with the places that they were in. Um, but I feel like uh, I wasn't able to achieve what I wanted to in those narratives. Oh, yeah. So I have published a couple of um, small things um, like short stories that were based on, on um, the novel and then um, there are some other stories that I will develop from that but mm. I think I've moved my thinking um, I've moved has from, moved yeah, yeah. beyond it yeah, I think so I think even for me I'm already thinking differently for my thesis for my book I'm, I'm writing and I feel like I'm barely ref- referring back to the thesis Mm. So that's uh, yeah. I think it moves. It moves pretty quickly because yeah. you get presented with a lot of information after. I think maybe during the thesis period, you really zone in one specific theory or other. Now you finish and you have the luxury of seeing things from different perspectives and having conversations. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think um, it's easy to forget that the PhD is really like a training yeah. degree. Um, so a lot of what you do in the PhD is kind of set foundations for mm. work that you kind of do after. Yeah, yeah, from. that's true. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a lot of PhD. It's a lot. How like what's the what's the most challenging part of the PhD journey for you? I think I was okay for most of it until it got towards the end, and ah, yeah. the pressure of having you know to finish it and to say it's done and. As I've said, you know, I wasn't fully happy with the novel, mm. for example, um, but it was enough for the PhD, and so I just have, had to, you know, kind of send it away and submit it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel that it was a fully yeah. completed work. Yet. I'm sure you say not enough is enough for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, and uh... it's the same with the book. Yeah. You know, I, I sent off the book, and um, there are some things in there that I think are a bit unresolved or, you know, things that I'll continue uh, to think about think, and develop. Yeah. I guess it's, I guess it's always with everything. It's always the, like you go back, you read it, you reflect and you see the opportunity to grow and from there, which is, yeah. So what you, you also work, uh, on, you create like a, a special, cause we talked about your special issue mm-hmm. where you, well, like describe it um, so I just launched a special issue of Swamp End Journal mm. uh, which is the journal for the Association for the Study of Literature Environment Culture Australia New Zealand yeah um, and this was a special issue that came out of a symposium that was run during the pandemic mm. um, the symposium was called Strange Letters and it asks for people to uh, rethink um, letters in, you know, a kind of, um, in a way that includes, you know, multi-species and non-human mm. perspectives, um, or that thinks differently about our relationship with um, place and environment. And yeah. Do you think when you talk about, like, humans taking like, the perspective of non-humans, and do you think with that you you kind of talking for them is it is this something where you are are you called, like putting your your voice on top of and making it sound like 
they are it's like when they make alien movies and they try to use human forms to depict our voice is it is do you think it's but then again how do you get non-humans and other species to also have a voice of their own yeah and this is a big question Mm. um there's a lot now that has been written about you know anthropomorphizing yeah um other species in in fiction and and also in non-fiction you know scientists have also you know had this question about um how um we can represent animals because um in the past um non-human animals have often been depicted um either as little humans yeah so you know the uh, human Mickey forms Mouse. and even you know even animals in in fiction movies and, mm. and books um that look or are described as animals and yet you know are really just humans on the inside yeah human, um, yeah that's true or they've been depicted in this very objectivist way um, where, and, and for good reason, mm. you know, people um, in the past have not wanted to anthropomorphize, have wanted to approach other species on their terms. Um, and yet that has also caused some problems. So in depicting um, other species as without you know, without a subjective inner life, yeah, um, or without a consciousness or without um, emotions, have left us with these kinds of empty shells that can then be objectified um, for the purpose of humans. So, I think, you know, we can't not anthropomorphize, mm. um, but of course, it's it's a delicate balance of trying to represent the non-human and find a way to try to represent them um while trying to avoid some of these issues that come with it so we can't avoid doing it but in doing it we're also going to do it imperfectly yeah i guess it's always being transparent and open about it and letting all these things come out and not yeah it's probably the same thing with when people talk about uh, culture and how people steal others, other people's culture. I always find it like a very difficult conversation. At the same time, you like it, you can do it, you can dance the Afro beat, you can sing. But then again, it's like if you are open and transparent and tell everybody, I love it, I'm doing it, and you do it with honesty, I think that's the best way. And yeah. just taking it and using it for your own and not really giving back giving credit or referencing the, the originators and it's it's always something that really it's a it's a difficult thing to how, yeah and you've also done a lot of post like how does a post-human theory all come into play with your work like i, I know yeah so yeah so i came to post-humanism towards the end of my PhD mm. and it kind of solved some of the issues that I saw um, in some of the previous um, movements like yeah. deep ecology and social ecology um, and it kind of moved to the space where we could talk about you know these really uh, complicated areas like you know this um, overlapping of human and non-human in nature Mm. um, and in urban nature in particular 
And so these ideas like entanglements, which, you know, are able to capture the complexity of um, how we are in relation to all of those things around us that are both part of human culture and non-human nature and culture and all of these yeah. things. So what, like, what, what do you think as part of you growing up made you decide to do this thing for nature or like, like all the work you've been doing, like what's, what's the influence? Where, where do you get all this, this from? Like I said, like, like take us back maybe when, like when you're a child, how do you become this who you are now? Yeah. Um, so I'm from New Zealand and I think that um, because nature is such a big part of um, the the lifestyle but also mm. the branding of New Zealand yeah. you know it's it's marketed as you know a kind of uh, natural yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, place but when they shot the, that's where they showed a lot of the rings yes. yeah because of the other mountains and stuff yeah yeah, so there is a lot um, there already embedded in the culture about, you know, thinking about the environment and mm. um, being sustainable. Um, I was often around a lot of um, nature. Um, many members of my family, my um, great aunts and uncles and grandparents had farms and so oh, yeah. we were often out, you know, um, on farmland with other animals, we were hiking in you know up mountains mm. and um, and even in the city, you know I remember going for walks with my friends down to the creek and the park and yeah. finding tadpoles in the water and um, yeah interacting with a lot of nature around us. Mm. Um, my mom was also a very big influence. Um, we used to. Um, taken a lot of stray animals and look after oh, okay. them and um, my mom was really into like natural products and um, yeah using less chemicals and um, I suppose they were my parents were hippies in a, um, in a maybe subtle a, way. in a subtle way uh, yes <laughs> um, yeah so I suppose it was kind of all around me and kind of yeah. yeah it's really interesting how parents really shape us by what they do and what they tell like where the environment you grow up in because most most like even for me most of my research is comes like when i think back and do a, a deep reflection it's coming back from my parents mm -hmm. even their marriage is pretty it's unorthodox where like the two they, them coming from different very distinct tribes where mm -hmm. It's a bit of tension there. So it's, but I guess my dad has always been that person who is always not conforming to. That's probably a conversation I should have with him one day and see why, and how he grew up the way he did and why what influenced him. Yeah, it's a pretty it's pretty interesting what parents. So what, do you think we've done enough in terms of, uh, for for non for non humans for the for nature like in terms of policies by the government do you think no i don't think we um i think in many ways we haven't even um, scratched the surface of what mm. we could do um, and i think particularly here in australia um, you know there are a lot of competing interests that 
are quite powerful voices in yeah. the community, um, like mining companies who, um, you know, profit a lot off, um, off, you know, producing carbon and yeah. um, also, you know, destroying some of the environments in order to mine. Um, and so those big powerful voices, you know, sometimes um, intervene and, and prevent um, policies going ahead. That's yeah, that's interesting. But do you do you think that's like what well, the world we have now? We have alternative forms of energy where we replace like coal, or do you think we have like there's a capacity like solar? I don't like. For me, I look at it this way: like it's. It's like the technology is not there yet. Even if it's there, it's not cheap. Yeah. Because it's, it's sad that society, everything is about money. Mm-hmm. Like the only reason why we we still use, probably used to, like fossil fuels because we've developed, the, the technology is there. It's easier to get, pull it out of the ground. But like with battery and lithium, like it's, it's now, it's not emerging, but like it's hard. Today I saw a video of, People charging their cars like two AM, they had to wait like three mm. hours to, to get a car charged. So that's all the inconvenience that come with that. So I guess it's when it becomes when people start in like there's a lot of investment now yeah. and I think it's just the ethical question of which companies are investing in those tech. It's the same companies making money off and they're going to exploit because they have the money. Mm. I mean BP has a, a huge research fund for EVs mm. and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they have to, and now Saudi Arabia, I guess with the Middle Eastern and Dubai, so they are shifting away the economy from yeah, to I've more tourism. Yeah, from to more tourism. tourism. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I can see, you know, there are some countries that are already mm. doing this. I think um, there are a couple of places in Europe that already have um, ninety or hundred percent of their energy produced yeah. through renewables. Um, I was in Iceland earlier this year, yeah. and it was very clear that, um, you know, the they as a country had a very, um, you know, big sustainable push. Mm. So um, every parking lot that you went to had electric vehicle chargers, yeah. and most of their electricity is produced through geothermal and um, other renewable sources. And they also get most of their hot water from geothermal sources. Mm. So it's, although the thing about Iceland is it's a very small country. country, (laughs) It's much easier to put in this, you know, kinds of infrastructure. And because it is a geothermal country, you know, it's easier to build on that. Because you probably can't do it in India. Yeah. There's so many, even in Africa. And Iceland is a wealthy country. Yeah, so they can you know, it's to. it's very expensive there. Mm, um, but most of the products that you buy you are of, sustainable. They do a lot of mining though, because they probably have a lot of oil. Oh, yeah, I don't know much about oh, the so, mining in Iceland, yeah. but yeah, it's possible. Because there's the Scandinavians, they have a, a lot of Norway. You don't really hear them, but like they a lot of yeah, mining yeah. oil. They do a lot. Yeah, yeah because. When Ghana first discovered oil, they had to. That the idea was to learn of what the Norwegians have done with their oh, really? oil production. Yeah, I don't think they learned much, because the thing with it, like now they've found lithium, mm-hmm. and the the thing I don't know whether it's the right. You no, know, that's the government gets thirteen percent 
of the mine. So most because the multinationals come in, use their money to do to invest invest so much money in equipment, finding the lithium and so the government will get you think it should be the because the government doesn't have the money to do to the exploration do and find yeah. which is and then they obviously have to deal with all of the consequences of that mining. Yeah, and the, to the people, the people and, and the environment. Yeah. yeah, it's most mining. You think most most mining companies, are, uh, uh, towns are with less infrastructure because all the the, the roads are bad, mm. but things are pretty expensive. You go to a mining company, you don't really see much of the benefits of the mines. Them. Right, so they yeah. don't really invest back into the communities. It's it's a question of we give. It's a question of they. I don't know the right because it's they obviously pay a lot of royalties to the chiefs because yeah. you got it, the chiefs are the owners of like yeah. land is owned by three people, mm-hmm. three bodies: the chief, which is the community, individuals, and the government. Mm. So if the chief is, they pay a lot of royalties to the chiefs. So what's the chief doing with that money? Right. I At the see. same time, they also pay a lot of taxes to the to the government. What's the government doing with the money? Mm-hmm. But there's also the responsibility on them to also do more for the for the community. So it's a very it's a complex it's a complex system mm-hmm. of corruption, individuals not doing. Because if you are a chief, you are supposed to serve the community. If you are mining, they've been mining in Ghana for probably the last two hundred years. Mm-hmm. What have you done with the money? Yes. Because yeah, it's just what enri- has come out of what it. come out like they just enrich themselves and the government too. How have you done for the community? Mm. And if for a country that's produced like gold, for like since it used to be called a gold coast and everything, this this no an a uh, gold refinery there. Mm. So every gold is taken out of to South Africa to get a refine. Right. Yeah, and if like in terms of even the environment, there's now this big, big Chinese. Uh, it's like it's called Galam City, so just to like small scale mining where they mine. So they put like, uh, yeah, and it's really like said in the, in the next probably 30 50 years, there'll be no water to drink because mm-hmm. they've used like all the water bodies have turned orange. Oh, like, right, so yeah, um, and you're buying, they go and buy like farmland, polluted. polluted all the water bodies, and mm. like it's. And so do you see part of the problem as being um, not enough regulation and policies around? There is enough regulations and policies, just, just more greed corruption. and corruption. So people not following and no consequences? No, yeah, yeah, exactly, no consequences. Where people... And it's it's like you... It's more like... Because the individuals, the Ghanaian, the individuals go in, bring the, bring the Chinese in there with their machinery and partner with them mm-hmm. and then do the mining. And they come, so they are the community, all the communal, the community land and everything is just they buy up, you buy the land off you. So maybe they buy it from off a cocoa farmer mm-hmm. and now they use it for mining. So there's a like rural areas where they offer them money because it's like, okay, just take this money, buy the land. Yeah. And if because if you are not doing the next, your next neighbor is has already sold the land, mm-hmm. so that is that it's, it's a bit of an issue. So there's it's pretty bad. It's it's a very it's a big problem. But the government did try initially to stop it. With like, so they had to send the military in to really mm. yeah because that that was how big the issue was. But then the government officials corrupted the whole thing. Right. They started taking bribes. 
because they found an opportunity because there's money in there yeah yeah and they did they, they like did expose and try to find like in the recently the attorney general just cleared uh the former minister who came out to write a report on the whole thing and said and the attorney general was like no nah, we investigated we didn't find anything mm-hmm. yeah but yeah it's it's a very and so is there less farming now in ghana because of the um increase in mining there is there's farming i think i think it hasn't gotten to a point where people are feeling it okay i think that's where people realize i think it's still people are getting food to buy people are getting water to drink i think when it gets to a point where people start feeling it the individual start affecting the individual you see you you drive past the water the lakes and the rivers and you see the colors have changed and people talk mm. about it and make noise but like I, I guess at the end of the day people are still going to the market to find tomatoes can, to buy yeah, they can pe- still buy chili food. to buy so it's not it's good and what makes it worse i was talking to a friend he does a lot of environment like he goes to communities to do a lot of environmental training it's like the other aspects where people don't really talk about is the economy because mm. when they come in they set up their own economy Right. It used to be the, the, it, it's always been a case where people do illegal mining like you know on a very small scale yeah. where the youth will go in and find uh, like a land a patch of land and they try do alluvial mining and stuff but the money stayed in the community so if the the the, the, the boy has done the mining he's going to spend the money in the, in the community. community build a house mm-hmm. in the community take care of but now here's the case where they come in with the machinery when the Chinese they set up their own shops Right. their own restaurant they bring their own, their, their own people they set up their home so the money just revolves around and it goes back to china it goes back to china so there's yeah. this thing where money is just leaving the country there's no it's, money yeah, in really the community exploitative yeah, expo- and, and only maybe maybe the chief and some of 20 people in the community are the only one benefiting from the whole scheme because mm. whenever they'll they bring their own restaurant their own palace their own entertainment their own casinos mm. they don't stop they print and press everything wow. they bring it so you go to a community and just so it's almost its own state yeah, it's own state and they mm. have their own economy and the community is it's out. just like, yeah like, and now they come then they employ them and they they probably they are part of it but at the same time the money is not going to mm. the people who really own the land and it's it's a pretty it's it's sad i don't know how it's going to i don't know how it's going to Probably we just need like a like a strong leader. I don't know because there's so much money involved too. As yeah. soon as there's money involved in something, it corrupts. Yeah, I see. I've seen a similar thing in New Zealand. Mm. Like um, because in New Zealand, one of the biggest exports is you know dairy products. And, oh, yeah. You know it all comes from farming, mm. um, and so you know maybe ten years ago. Um, farmers were still saying oh you know like uh, climate change we don't really need to do anything about this and then yeah about 10 years ago when you know we started to see more floods and fires and crops you know were being impacted by um, local climate conditions and um, then farmers started to to see because it was impacting their profits um, and impacting them personally that then they started to say much more about climate change and yeah. 
um, when I was there recently, you could see a huge shift towards sustainability. So mm. um, there as well, um, there are a lot more electric vehicles and the government is really encouraging people to yeah. buy electric vehicles. There's a lot more solar um, panels on roofs. Um, there's a lot of farmers who are doing things more self-sufficiently, like using um, pumps in creeks to produce their own water oh, and yeah. to um, produce electricity to heat always, their water yeah, as well. Yeah, I've always thought about how you can dam. So they dam and use like the current. So it, um, not, not even damming sometimes. So sometimes it's a strong flowing river already and uh, they can just put a little pump in pump, there yeah. and the strength of the water generates electricity. Yeah. I guess like for, I guess it's something you could do for a lot of... A very small uh, scale. Yeah, though. small scale for yeah. communities and farmers and stuff. Yeah. Because there's also this this thing about farming which is which cannot be like from farms are not sustainable how they yes for sure there's big, big mass-produced farms, farms yeah. and monocrop monocrops and, yeah um yeah really impact the local environment i suppose new zealand you don't see as much mm. of that because it's such a you know the soils are so nutritious there and mm. um everything kind of grows quite well but here in australia um, where you know we have this kind of drought flood um, system um, you really see a lot you know yeah. once the soils are stripped of nutrients it's hard to get back there yeah to to to, to difficult to, to always difficult to because farming you think farming if you hear the name like the word farming agriculture you think it's just this sustainable thing where people mm. you grow food this notion about growing food, eating from the land, but like this, it's a big industry. A huge a industry. A huge industry yeah. in how, and I, like I heard if it's true or not, like this, they're saying even when you go to the shops and you buy organic and they've written organic certified, it mm. could, it doesn't mean it's purely organic. So you need to be extra careful. Yeah, reading. we have to, you have to see what the regulations mm. are. And I think every state has its own regulations. Yeah. Um, and yeah there is a lot of greenwashing involved and yeah, yeah things like organic and yeah um, you think organic food will be cheaper like if you think you think healthy food should be cheaper but like it's not no it's more expensive it's more expensive because yeah. yeah that's adding a, like an extra like 50 dollars to your grocery shopping so it makes like with all this cost high rising cost of living how do you even like, get people to buy because i've been trying to buy more organic and i realized how expensive, oh, expensive yeah. so i think there's all kinds of sites that talk about um yeah which organic foods you should prioritize and mm. um but it really depends why you're buying organics you know if you're buying it for your own health that's one thing um but if you're buying it for the health and sustainability of the environment, environment. Um, then yeah, it becomes quite difficult. I think. Which one do you buy? Do you buy it for your own health or the sustainability? I suppose a little bit of both. Mm. Yeah, I try to do. I try to um, find sustainable options where I can. Yeah. yeah. But as you say, with the rising cost of living, yeah, it's, it becomes uh, hard to do that. I don't know how we got here, because it's like the economy. Didn't you see this was going to happen? And how is the big, uh, the big companies, the retail company, the groceries, they are making so much profit. But at the mm. same time, they are complaining about how much they have to, 
like costs have gone up maybe reduce some of your profit and yeah but i guess it's <laughs> like now nah, that that's that's not how business works and yeah the mom yeah you need more money your shareholders have to get all the money mm-hmm. and all this and stuff it's a it's a very interesting so you've you've recently started working with c mm-hmm. and i guess you've like we've had discussion and you've talked about how different they are like they approach research the yes you know like it's more disruptive they they encourage people to like try as much as possible to like just disrupt what traditional research is how do you like how do you find it how so far like what do you think about the whole this like it's Forgotten that the full name is sustainability in education and arts. Sustainability environment and yeah. arts and education. Okay, as you know, I work there. Research center. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? 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 Like so far since you started working, what? What's the big? Like what's the biggest shift? Like you've noticed compared to where you've previously worked. Yeah. So definitely, it's much less traditional mm. in the kinds of research that people are undertaking. Um, and I see a lot more connections um, with my own research. Mm. There's a lot of people doing things with posthumanism and um, alternative methodologies like yeah. critical walking methods and mm. um, arts-based methods and um, and lots of people, yeah, trying to push the boundaries of what yeah. academic research is. Yeah. Lots of storytelling, which I really I yeah. love. Um, and this, I think it's... Um, you know, it's a commitment to um, the environment and how we can rethink um, mm. our relationship with the, the environment. environment. Um, but it's also this kind of, you know, push towards things like decolonial um, practices and including alternative voices in yeah, research, in research, which it's, I suppose is where you're. you're yeah, yeah. My, I, like, I, I found it very. It's a, it's a very. It's, it's also pretty very supportive mm-hmm. i think it's a place where you you get in there and it's like everybody is like wants you to win like it's you don't get that in a lot of people like a lot of groups when human beings start grouping together it's always people who really in the background trying but like this is a place where people are very positive they, they really cheer you on they tell you are doing very well so it's a very i think that's and also the research because I, I came in a very traditional, I thought research was like, right according, Methods, yeah, metal, discussion. yeah, discussions. <laughs> yeah. And then during the lot like during, I think after the first year, like it all started shifting mm-hmm. to if, to more, just do something that really relate to what you are doing. Like that, don't, just because someone has done it, that's like you could also do your own you could also come up with innovative ways of doing research innovative ways of looking at things around you because you come from a different place it's not you're not coming from the place you're like the person is citing you're coming from a different place so you should also go back there and try to see how, how knowledge is produced and how you could use it in your research which is something i've really dis- had discussions with people about where they think research should be all like objective positive is like I was like you are part of the research the research is about you i don't so you just it's you need to acknowledge you acknowledge the fact yeah. that you are part of the research you're also coming from a place where because if you are doing research in 
like for indigenous or marginalized or like issue that's you should you are doing a research for those people so you should go in there and understand how the knowledge yeah knowledge works for them for you to also interpret it you know you can't just do copy what you know here or try to translate the knowledge into some kind of western paradigm yeah exactly and that's one of the biggest problems in terms of policy and things back in africa and i guess in the third world it's like what they are doing doesn't relate to what the people yeah so you you could have all the laws we talked about you could have all the law the policy and stuff but then when you go and try to implement it doesn't work because that's not how people think people and think and, it, and yeah live and stuff mm-hmm. it's very different it's a very i always think people in africa there's always a spiritual component it's a very secular way of thinking where people the cost like they think about the cosmology cosmology of things they think about the ontology it's totally different from where here everything is linear you move from one you go to two you go to three everything everybody does comes with a prayer comes with a ritual comes with something so how so you need to acknowledge all those things in your research and have like have debates with people who think it's it shouldn't because if you don't do it that way then you are losing the legitimacy of the research the research is not legitimate enough because you haven't gone through the real growth scientific method where you've collated like 500 people's views and then you've done interviews and things and stuff and just but then how is your research then working in the real world like a situation in the real world like where you come fit uh, i guess the sea opened my eye like working with like lexi my, like then gave me the two sets to really then think about those things and reflect back and say okay this is where i'm coming from what am i like how do i re- link the western and the non-western they also the issue has always been the debate has always been like going back and saying privileging indigenous knowledge doesn't mean western knowledge is not good enough yes like it's not it's not that whatever it's not a competition it's not a competition it's not like it's not saying ah oh, like everything like I guess colonization, yeah, like everything, just yeah, chunk, it, it yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. about how you hype, like it's a hybrid system, how you bring the two together. Mm-hmm. There's always, there are certain aspects of Australian culture and life which I really enjoy. There's also a lot of aspects of African culture I really enjoy. So it's always like bringing the two together. Mm-hmm. This, but like, it's always a debate where I think with post colonialism, it's really. I think that's the biggest criticism where people, the critic is saying, what like, what you had there was issues what you had before, like, it it wasn't all good and it was like still wars and stuff. But I guess trying to find like that middle ground where you you teach like with for me design you teach the bar house you teach the faction but at the same time acknowledging that indigenous african indigenous australian indigenous tech, like also have their own thing and bringing and making mm-hmm. sure and how things. do we you know how do we innovate how do we do things yeah. you know differently or you know um better unless we know yeah. you know all of these different knowledges, different knowledges and yeah. backgrounds um yeah it's true because i feel like west like there's not much more to in the sense of Western knowledge to find out anymore. It's been studied 
really studied very very steady so there's now this push for a lot of academics to find alternative ways of knowledge so they, they they're searching for indigenous knowledge they're searching for so it's because there's where there's so much knowledge that hasn't been uncovered through like stories like the storytelling it's a pretty i'm sure it's been there for like about it's like awakening it's it. awakening all those also the i guess it comes with the problem of people not giving like not, give, not reciprocating yeah not acknowledging that yeah. and trying to use it or pick and make it make it look like it's something they ca- they came up with mm-hmm. it's a very it's a very it's a very interesting i guess it's always it's good to have all this discussion and know because you it's good to have the two discussion the positive the negative and this is always it's no it's never going to be 100 percent. it's always going to be there's always yeah, going to be research good. is always yeah, there's perfect. always, going to, there's always going to, somewhere to go. It's going to find gaps. I guess that's why we do research to find yeah. problems. <laughs> to find yeah. problems, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and when you think about like academia and how it's structured, it's like find a problem, hype it mm-hmm. to get like hype it and make sure it's like the last thing in the world. If it doesn't happen, this yes, are going to fall yeah, apart and make sure the most important, the most important thing. Yes. And everybody's problem is the most important thing. And yeah. okay, then. If you make it that way, then you can then get your grant, you get your and do your investigation. Yeah. And I think this is the nice thing about C is that mm. you know academia is such a competitive place, yeah. and we're all you know supposed to compete for these like small bits of grants, especially mm. in you know the arts and humanities yeah. and, and education. Um, and C is this you know much more collegial and collaborative and mm. supportive. Um, place it almost feels like a little you know a, a kind of bubble against yeah. you know some of this um competition, competition and, and, yeah um yeah the yeah. negatives of academia yeah, i guess individuals have their own comp- but it's i feel like most academic like academics are already individually motivated driven yes because they are like i'm like everyone cares <laughs> about what they're doing yeah they care yeah. very like very passionate about what they are doing they're always like very driven very so it's not it's not so much about like sometimes it's not so much about competition like the person really does does that's, yeah. that's really yeah. they, they do they really want to take take it as fast as they can i guess i'm for me i'm pretty new and i've been really gotten into a space where people were very like trying to out compete you and trying to I've, i guess i'm yet to get you have had a sense of yeah, I've had a sense of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose especially, you know, when you're precarious in academia, mm. um, you can find, you know, it quite isolating at times. And, yeah. Um, there's a lot of, you know, push for people that, um, you know, are doing the kind of research that, you know, will attract a DECRA. Yeah, the know. money, yeah. Um, and so if you're doing something in an area that's a bit, you know, kind of untraditional, mm. a bit radical, um, you know, more arts-based, then I think in traditional academic circles, you can feel um, yeah. a bit devalued. So, um, yeah, which is the kind of nice thing about, you know, groups like C that yeah. push... They push the boundaries. Push the boundaries and yeah. and show that it's valid research and that's legitimate. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I think as we the the world becomes more, I think how knowledge now is presented, where the news, everybody's getting their news. Like you, you something happens Social and the news, media. yeah, the news. Like you get different narratives Versions. of the news. I yeah. think as <laughs> the world becomes more open, people become more open with different forms of knowledge and ideas coming from different places. It's just that it's very unfortunate. There's a lot of pushback. Yeah, there's a lot of people who feel invalidated. It's very, you know, for for a lot of people, um, there's so much information out there that mm. it's quite overwhelming. And I think, you know, whenever we're talking about changes, that can be very scary for people. Yeah. So um, they need to be able to see and imagine mm. um, themselves in, you know, this different yeah, world that yeah, that's they're true. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, because you talk to people outside academia and they they feel threatened yes. they feel like the world is leaving them i guess like they seem like they, the world is moving too fast for them to keep up so they feel like no nah, let's go back to the old ways or let's stay where we are or you're changing too much we don't are not really comfortable let's just stay or you know there's just so much uncertainty mm. about what this means yeah and i think you know a lot of traditional research hasn't done a good job of bringing people along with it and, yeah. and placing them within the research yeah. and saying this is how you fit into true um, yeah yeah i was i've been working on uh, like a research assistant job uh, work where you look into dignity even for my research i was interested in reading through my research when before the presentation i felt like i wrote about the human being the center of every because i guess you've got into a point where you need to place the human because if you are doing research, you need to place the human at the center and make every like make them feel like they are part, as you said, like a part of what the research and the what you are trying to do. I think it's more there's always this thing where academia and it's just being a bubble where people from the outside don't really know what's going on. Yes. And I was trying to explain to someone asked me what I do. I was like, ah, oh, I did a PhD in education. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, the people who come up with all this work, change our curriculum and teaching and learning. And that's and what the person... <laughs> that's what really the, understand. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's what the person... So I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Like, person doesn't really even know. And I'm like... And I was like, yeah. Like, and uh, there was another person I was like, all these, like, the teaching and learning is coming from the top down. Mm-hmm. And they, like, everything is changing so fast that they, like, as you said, they can't really feel like... Because the school curriculum is changing textbooks are changing yeah like things are happening because uh, uh, research is happening so quickly and so fast and people are really coming up with innovative research so I, I guess that's a big like that's a problem I think it's always been there where mm. academic academic like even I realized when working at the office it's a very there's a, a unspoken separation between the professionals and the, the academics mm-hmm. I guess it's it's like it's just this on like unspoken rule where they exhibit in like they uh, live in two separate strands of work where the yeah. academics are doing their meetings, the professionals are in their office. So even with that one, there's not. I'm sure a lot of academic like professionals are they don't they don't really know a lot about the 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 research going on in the in the faculty. Yes. They just do their uh, professional work and they leave. 
So even 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 within the university, even in university there's a, yeah, there's yeah. a division. Mm. Yeah, and the professional side is almost kind of seen as the business of the, the business, university, yeah. and then where the knowledge of the university. Yeah, yeah, too. Um, and then I guess we are kind of in between in our yeah, position. Yeah, <laughs> we're doing a bit of both. It's in, it's interesting. I, like I. I I guess I've always said I'm a bit fortunate to have worked in like in professional setting mm-hmm. to really because I feel like it's because with academia you kind of you finish school you go to school you go to school you go to school you go to school so you don't really you finish and you have a like an idea but if you really talk to people and really can work around people you really kind of know people are really people have different problems people mm-hmm. People just want simple things, and people don't have like people don't have time to really. They don't want to, yeah, think so deeply <laughs> yeah. about things. As yeah, us. people yeah. don't. People don't have to, like it's like they work from eight to five. Let's say they go home, they have kids. They need to make dinner. They need to make <laughs> dinner. Do the housework, pay bills. Yeah, pay it. So it's they don't have time. They don't have people yeah. don't have time to really sit down and think about how the world works and the systems around them. And what influencing their decision, their unconscious and unconscious decision making, which I find pretty interesting. It's like I've been in the book, the book I've been writing, I've been uh, writing about dual processing theory, where like the human, the unconscious and consci- conscious of. So they give the example of this, the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. So when you start learning it, it's like where is the box? Where is the triangle? Where is this, the? So that's your your conscious picking up. So as soon as you learn it, it becomes like an unconscious thing where you pick it up and just keep going. You keep going. It's like riding a bike when you are learning; it's very hard. But as soon as your unconscious kicks in and just becomes a memory, you just do it in every time. It's like, and I I read something like how do you use game theory to then like game theory like in spaces and stuff to be then like kind of stop people from like littering like putting stuff out like how do you game the the whole system mm. it's like a, how do you like find a way to trick not trick is a it's not a good i don't think tricks a good but like how do you find them to how shape behavior so yeah. yes yeah, so like shape behavior and shape people in a way where it's it's better for the environment mm. it's better for like schools it's better for what we do as human beings yeah yeah and I think, um, you know, education has to be part of that, you mm. know, like, um, because really, like, when we're in school, when we're in university, yeah. this is the time when we have, you know, that time and space to be mm. able to think about yeah. things and set those habits. So, yeah, I guess that's why, you know, this kind of work is so important. Yeah. That, you know, we can kind of set up those <laughs> habits differently yeah, different, and then yeah. it um, eventually filters through. Yeah, yeah. There's this thing where, especially in America, where the right feels like the left has taken over the education system and it's making everybody walk. Mm-hmm. And so now students coming out of the invasive system are like, like you heard what happened to Badweiser, where where they, I guess they gave a, like a trans person, uh, they, they wrote, they did something with the branding where then they made a, a, like a trans person promote it, like as a marketing thing, and everybody was upset. They started boycotting Badweiser, uh-huh. and they started affecting Badweisers. Mm-hmm. So it's like, maybe, that's if you keep, you keep saying, it's like, maybe it's, things are moving so fast for ordinary people to really be part of it. Like, 
it's either we like it's like they're saying ah oh, the car is moving it's either you're part of it you are going to leave you behind mm-hmm. and people are trying to pull back and say no nah, like it's too much for us right now let's there was a big it was a big uh twitter thing where like there was people shooting at bad riser cans mm-hmm. bad riser cans being left in fridges like it was people really boycotted it because they gave it to they gave a trans person it's just a bit it's weird. It's so sad. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, like, what does it matter? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just a person. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit, Although bit. I feel like there is this kind of, yeah, push for, um, for companies to do things to say, you know, we're mm. socially aware or we're socially responsible yeah. and, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit with their values either. No. Um, it's, uh, they just game the system they just use it mm. to promote their own interests they don't really i don't think the ceo really cares yes i don't it's more of it's a market how do we get those groups of people coming in to buy our stuff watch what's the world go- like it's like they sit down it's like what is happening in the world right? what can we be part of where we get more we get seen we get more eyes on our product and stuff so they don't really i don't think this they, they think, really care it, passionately um, Pepsi that tried to capitalize on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah, I, I was going to give that, give that example where that became a movement where it was like all of a sudden I remember going to Park Fair and every window door had a black person. It's like they're trying too hard. Mm. Like that's not what the yeah. Did you actually do anything to to support yeah, 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 black like, people? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, you go image. Yeah. You go like even this plaster I'm having. Apparently, they, yes, yeah. There's this match your skin. Yeah, there. yeah, because they never <laughs> developed it to match the black skin. So mm. it's like, that's why plasters have that color. They never. So nowadays, like you go to chemistry house, they have like different different colors and stuff. I guess it's but like after the the whole black lives matter you i remember going to the shops like oh it's like so many panels well everything is a black person it's like i don't think they care much it's just no, they just want to be part of it yeah they just want to be part of a movement and, and make them like be part of the good people mm. it's like a lot of things yeah with the like with the trans thing it's it's a it's an interesting conversation having in like back home where there's this push by some MP. I don't understand why he cares so much about what people do in their yeah, bedroom and stuff. Exactly. It's like they are trying to push so hard to get a law in place. Like people are going to use these laws to beat up people. Let's say, how do you know the person is exactly who you think they are? Let's say if the person is like, like the person behaves like a like a bit feminine and like who are you to tell whether. What yeah, he likes. How do you know what the like? sexuality yeah. is? Yeah. And most people who there's this thing where like most people who do that like do they doing it out of fear. Out of fear of themselves being one of them. Mm-hmm. And I think we've already seen that like in the US where, you know, women going into women's bathrooms mm. have been stopped and you know, because they have a you know, a masculine haircut or um, you know, they don't look like the stereotypical yeah. Um, woman and then somehow have to you know justify why they want to go to a particular bathroom (laughs) that you know they're comfortable in Um, and so often you know but the the sad thing is often you know trans people and um, people who don't conform to Mm. gender norms are you know more likely to be harmed than people 
you know, who are who conform to gender yeah. norms, you know, are very little like not very likely to be harmed by trans or Yeah, it's uh it's pretty it's pretty interesting how I think what happens with the world is there's a lot of overcompensation after something happens. So when something happens really badly, like everybody tries to overcompensate and do the right thing, then it becomes like overdoing the right thing, mm-hmm. and then it becomes like a big of pushback, and then you find a middle ground somewhere, and you just all become okay with it. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. I wait, I, I wait for that moment that we can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like, it happens like everybody's like, hey, hey, and then then this then it becomes like the norm, and everybody just yeah, moves, fine. yeah, yeah. moves through it. Oh, I was gonna say one thing, I forgot. Like every, every everything becomes like you move out and yeah. I was gonna talk about something else. Oh, got a, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gonna ask another question. I was in my head. So, uh, so, so far, like after your book, what are you? Are you working on anything else? After your book, your special issue, is there anything else? Yeah, I've got a few small projects that I'm working on. Um, I'm, at the moment, I'm doing a little bit of work in critical animal studies. So mm. I'm looking at how to write other animals and, you know, trying to um, write about some of the issues related to other animals, you know, making space for them in our cities. And What do you mean by, like, other animals? Um, so... So I use this term other animals because um, in recognition that humans are also, you know, an animal. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, so other animals besides humans. Oh. Um, yeah, I'm trying to make space for them, you know, in our cities. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I guess this should be part of all this the planning. And this. Yeah, but there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, um, prevent other species from living with us. So, for example, I think one big um, example is the the bats. Mm. So they've been pushed out of you know kind of forest areas yeah. as we develop the cities further, and then when they come into the cities, often they're kind of dispersed from parks, and we've uh. seen that happen. Um, in Queensland on the Gold Coast here um, we've seen it happen in Melbourne and Sydney mm. um, and there's nowhere else for them to go so yeah um, yeah well, the bat, but when they are swamping it's pretty it's pretty noisy and pretty scary like you know when they're coming yeah yeah I've seen I've never had an issue <laughs> yeah that's pretty uh, like the other I think I think it's very exciting for us when we first moved here to see this uh, big, the big um, swarms swarm. of bats flying over. But yeah. you hardly see that anymore. Yeah, you hardly see that. That's mm. yeah. I remember I go to a time in Ghana like you hardly see vultures. Mm. Like I used to see them all as a kid, and it was just thing funny. It's like maybe they've been using them for the restaurant. You know, mm. but I go to a time like where like I'm sure they migrated somewhere because they probably wasn't. Like they moved away or something. But I was like, oh, like you, you don't see them anymore. That's pretty. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Your work, your work sounds pretty interesting. I guess. How long have you done? Yeah, done an hour. Yeah. yeah, that's really a nice place to. <laughs> yeah, to when yeah. So yeah, uh, do you want to tell people how they f- they will find like your social media? 
because I know you use Twitter a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can find me on um, Twitter. I think it's just at Chantal Base. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I have a LinkedIn. Yeah. I think I have a Griffith page. Um, perhaps we will have a C page at some yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's only two. Um, Two Chantal Bezos in the world. <laughs> no. So it should be pretty easy to find. Yeah, pretty easy to find out. Um, or you can Google my book title, Reimagining Urban Nature, yeah. Literary Imaginaries for Post-Human Cities. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I like like I Googled you this morning just to see. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy to find you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> find you on the internet. So. Yeah, thanks for coming. And what how like last question, how d- I always found it interesting. Like, how do you after a PhD? How do you write your name? Do you write doctor? Then you write your name, or you just write the name and a PhD. It's very. So I think doctor. Um, so the official name, and then the PhD after your name says which degree you got. Because uh, I think you can get like a doctorate in education. Yeah, or, EDL. Some people yeah. get some. Do- I don't know. I always struggle. Or you I, can get an honorary doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, <laughs> why do you, why do you want a doctor? Like, I, what I find it funny is people who don't like they've never they they probably dropped up of dropped out of high school or something obviously became very successful but they, they want the doctor i was like your like your whole image and thing is about not going to school and becoming this and now you want it it's like you still want the validation or the or something. yeah uh, <laughs> thanks for coming out here